At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. In its new podcast, The Record, SI is revisiting classic pieces and re-examining their context, revealing untold anecdotes from the reporting process with writers and ultimately driving new conversations around the athletes, events, and moments in sports history that SI has covered for more than 60 years. Host John Wertheim and correspondents Jamie Lasanti, Jessica Smetania, and Priya Desai dive into the SI vault to uncover the best Sports Illustrated stories covering the biggest legends in sports history. From Michael Jordan to Serena Williams, each episode focuses on a single moment that defines an unparalleled athlete. In the spring of 1984, Michael Jordan sat before a table in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. In retrospect, seismic news was coming, but it didn't seem like that way at the time. This impromptu press conference was held not at Carmichael Arena, where the UNC Tar Heels played, but at Fetzer Gym, a kind of campus rec center. Jordan was there to announce that he was leaving school after his junior year and turning pro. Except he didn't make the announcement. Not really, anyway. Jordan was flanked by his coach, Dean Smith, who did most of the talking. At this time, we are announcing that Michael will denounce his college eligibility, Smith said. Yeah, he said denouncing in what could have been a Freudian slip. 
Wearing a golf shirt and a pair of gold chains, Jordan looks somber on what should have been one of the great days in his 21 years on the planet. Like his mother, though, Michael would have preferred to stay at North Carolina, play one more season with his pals, and then go off to the pros. Michael's father, James, though, the hailest of hail fellows, lightened the mood. At least now, James told everyone in the room that day, his son could pay his own bills and stop sponging from his parents. This scene at UNC contrasted sharply with the scene less than a decade later when Jordan again was the subject of a surprise out-of-season hastily called press conference. This one, too, was at a practice facility, in this case the Berto Center, the Chicago Bulls' second gym. The crowd this time was huge. It included a horde of media such as Tom Brokaw, then the host of the NBC Evening News. And now, on October 6, 1993, Jordan wore not a golf shirt and chains, but a bespoke olive suit, a green tie, a white pocket square, and he sat before the crowd ringed by his wife Juanita, the Chicago Bulls owner Jerry Reinsdorf, its coach Phil Jackson, the general manager Jerry Krause, and most of his Bulls teammates. This time, Jordan did the talking. He was in charge. This was his decision. Firmly and clinically, he declared that at age 30, he was done. Done with basketball. I'm very solid with my decision of not to uh, play the, the game of basketball uh, in the NBA. It's not because I don't love the game. I love the game of basketball, I always will. I just feel that at this particular time in my career, I've reached the pinnacle of my career. Uh, I've achieved a lot in that short amount of time, if you, uh, if you want to call it short. Um, but I just feel that I don't have anything else for myself to prove. Michael Jordan was coming off his third straight season leading the Bulls to the NBA title, and his seventh straight scoring title. But he was calling it curtains. He could have quit right there and gone down as one of the best ever, no doubt about it. We have this moldy cliche about athletes going out on top. Well, he sure was on top. As the New York Times put it, like Alexander the Great, Michael Jordan said he had no more worlds to conquer. Except he kind of did. In June, the Bulls had won their third straight NBA title. So why not defend home court and go for a fourth? Jordan's seven straight scoring titles had him making inroads towards all sorts of all-time records. Why not keep going? Jordan had won the MVP award multiple times before, but that season he'd been beaten out by his pal Charles Barkley. Why not try and win back the top award in 1994? It all just seems so off-brand. Here was an athlete whose competitive juices didn't just flow, they leaked into and onto everything he did, even away from basketball. Here was an athlete at the peak of his powers, only 30 years old, and he was just going to vacate the throne? Jordan spoke for a long time that day, but the why remained a puzzle. In vague terms, he alluded to the pressures of being Michael Jordan. The spotlight, the media crush, it could be overwhelming. He kept referencing you guys, this disembodied mass of media that wouldn't leave him alone. He also referenced his father, James Jordan, 
the man who had been so jovial when Michael turned pro that day in Chapel Hill. James Jordan had been murdered that summer. Said Michael, my father saw my last basketball game and that means a lot. And then there was the sinister explanation. That Jordan had been somehow forced out of the NBA for gambling. Jordan not only denied this though, but he joked about it. That afternoon, someone asked Jerry Reinsdorf if Jordan's number would be retired. Reinsdorf replied, it's a pretty good bet that no one else on the Bulls will wear number 23. Jordan jumped in. That wasn't a bet, he said. We don't bet. So what would Jordan do next? Well, he had an answer ready. Just relax and watch the grass grow and then go out and cut it. For more on Michael Jordan's decision to retire in 1993 in this unique moment in sports history, we turn to Sports Illustrated writer and producer Jessica Smetana. In the 90s, it was impossible to open an issue of Sports Illustrated without seeing something about Michael Jordan, whether it was iconic photos from SI photographer Walter Yost or stories in the magazine by legendary NBA reporter Jack McCallum, Jordan was everywhere. McCallum covered most of Jordan's career for SI, including his 1991 Sportsman of the Year cover and his 40th birthday in 2003 while playing for the Washington Wizards. McCallum was on it. He knew Jordan better than almost any writer in the world. But when Jordan infamously retired in the fall of 1993, at the peak of his career, even McCallum was surprised. It was shocking. I mean, just to hear the words because he was only 30. I mean, he was 30 years old. Nobody, one of the things you, when you're a sports writer, you always kind of know is that it's really difficult for athletes to walk away. Boxers, oh man, this is my last fight. They always come back. <laughs> you know, There's tons of baseball players. Willie Mays, I'm going to play one more year. Tom Brady, <laughs> you know, up, I'm going to play one more year at another place. So when somebody, not only the absolute pinnacle of his career, the absolute pinnacle of every, anyone's career. I mean, Michael was the best, arguably the best player at, in any sport at that time, still in an age when you're in your prime. And he announced he's going to walk away. So even if you had an inkling of it, uh, it was a very, very, very surprising press conference. Do you remember where you were when you wrote the story, The Desire Isn't There, about Michael's retirement? Well, I remember where I was because I called up. I was in the office. I was then going to start some work in the office the first time I had ever worked in the Sports Illustrated office. But I had to do this story, and I called up David Stearns, the commissioner, because the question was, did Michael's retirement have anything to do with the accusations of gambling? And by then, you know, his father had been murdered in this bizarre thing that happened only six weeks. He wins number three. His father gets murdered on a, you know, rural road uh, in Carolina. And then Michael retires two months after that. So the question to ask David Stern is, what is the connection to all this? And I remember because I was sitting at an office at Sports Illustrated, and when I asked David Stern that question, you know, he just tore my head off. Don't you ask any accusations between this and gambling. I did not tell Michael Jordan to walk away from the game. This was his decision, uh, you know, and there's a line in Shakespeare, you know, the lady doth protest too much when... You wonder, was Stern making too much of a deal out of this? And, and hey, look, this continues to be a conspiracy question 
you know, in 2020. I have come to the conclusion that no, David Stern did not ask Michael Jordan to walk away from the game. That this combination of factors, including the fatigue, the the problems with the media, the death of his father, and apparently something we didn't know then, which was this weird idea to go play baseball, which you know, which was he didn't mention that as I recall at the press conference. Uh, it wasn't about. I'm retiring and I'm joining the White Sox. You know, that came later. So nobody knew what Michael was going to do. I had a theory I, I put into the story that he was going to buy a team in Europe because God knows he had the money to buy 10 teams in Europe. And he was maybe, hey, let's try it over there for a year. You know, let me get 33 points a game and, and eat pasta over there for a couple of years. So nobody knew exactly what he was uh, was going to do. But I remember writing that story uh, where I was because of Stern practically, uh, you know, yelling the phone off of my uh, off of my ear. Where did those conspiracy theories start? I think it was too obvious for them not to start. In the summer of 1993, Michael Jordan's father, James Jordan, was shot on the side of the road in North Carolina, his body discarded in a swamp nearby. Two men were sent to prison for life for their role in Jordan's murder, but to this day, one of them, Daniel Green, claims his innocence. At the time of Jordan's retirement, unfairly or not, people had a lot of questions as to how this happened and specifically why Jordan's family didn't report his father missing right away. Jordan was tight-lipped about his father's death, but did go on Oprah where she had to ask him about it. A couple weeks after the press conference, he went on the Oprah Winfrey show. And uh, if you were going to talk to anybody back then, you were going to talk to Oprah. And Oprah, I'm not going to say pressed him pretty hard, but just a little bit hard about his father's death. You know, the family didn't report it for a while because I guess Michael's father had had this habit of kind of just clocking out once in a while. You know, he, he would disappear for periods of time. So there was some mystery attached to it. And Oprah asked him, do you think maybe you should have taken some time to process this, to, I mean, the stuff that had happened in your life was incredible. And Michael kind of snapped, I didn't need that. And when I went back to interview him for my Dream Team book in 2012, I kind of gingerly raised that same question. I mean, what had happened to you in those months? The tragedy, the violence of your father's murder, the, uh, the mysteriousness of it, the horribleness of it. And then you retire from basketball right afterward. Do you think you processed it? I said, I'm no psychologist, but this was a really amazing time in, in your life, far less in anyone's life, far less someone who's a celebrity, you know, in, you know, one of the top celebrities in the world. Now, Michael jumped on my throat. I knew just what I was doing. I, I processed it. I processed it by getting into baseball. I processed my father's death by every night I played minor league baseball, I thought of my father. That was the game we loved. That was the game we grew up talking about. I understood that as a kid from the 50s because baseball united millions of fathers and sons. That's, that was the basis of my father's relationship, my, myself and my father. So I understood that. But it was a very interesting thing, uh, these four or five months of Michael's life, uh, 
you know, to have gone through the intensity of that was really something. Do you think he knew during the press conference that he was going to play baseball? Or do you think that was something that he decided once he had been retired for a few months and realized that he needed, you know, he needed sports, he needed to do something competitive, he needed to do something athletic? One of the little tricks that you did when you got when you interviewed someone for the hundredth time, I always found was to get them to talk about other sports that they played. I remember you could always do this with, with like Larry Bird, you know, that he would talk not for hours, but he would go on and on about what a great badminton player he was, (laughs) you know, like backyard badminton, man, I was the best badminton player there ever was. And Michael, you could do this with him too, about what other sports he could have been good in. He was a ferocious ping pong player, for example. And we used to talk once in a while, uh, talk to Steve Nash about soccer, you know, and once in a while, one of the things you could talk about Michael was with baseball, but apparently at that press conference, which was in October, none of us idiots asked him if he was going to go in (laughs) to another pro sport. The default position with Jordan was always golf because he played so much golf but we all knew that he was not nearly the type of player that was good enough to remotely think about playing pro golf. I mean, I guess some of us thought maybe he would go into some of the minor qualifying tours and try to qualify for something, but I I don't even think they were that big back then. So in answer to your question, I think it was around by January that we started to hear, what? Michael's going to spring training. Uh, Whether that was in his mind in October, I have to think yes, but somehow he kept from mentioning it. What were the reactions from some of his teammates and, you know, coaches and Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf from this surprise retirement announcement? Well, I think uh, there was there was shock. The SI ran a great picture of the press conference when they're all around there, Scotty, and uh, and everybody's kind of like. (laughs) you know but but it's a funny thing in sports and that is that when somebody leaves you move up (laughs) you know you move up one and I have to think that inside of all of them particularly Scotty was this idea hey let me see if let me see how much of this Let me see what I can get done without Michael. Let me see if I can get that shadow off of me. You know, I don't know whether whether it was in Phil Jackson's mind. Phil was smart enough to know, uh, yeah, this ain't going to be the same without Michael. But it probably wasn't in the eyes of the fans and the people that watched the league it was probably pretty shocking. Where are we? How, how are we going to go on without Michael? I'm guessing that in the hearts and souls of his teammates, there was a little bit of, okay, let's see what we can do now. And I know around the league, there was a sense of relief because there was a lot of people in that league who knew they were not going to win a title as long as that freaking freak Michael Jordan was playing for the Chicago Bulls. So I'm sure some of them had uh, had a sense of relief about it. In your story, you wrote about how Charles Barkley said that he never 
hung out with Michael Jordan in public. They only hung out in hotel rooms. So in 93, what was Michael Jordan's public persona and how how big was he as a star? Charles is an interesting uh, counterpart because, you know, when he said that, we were only a year removed from the Dream Team and I was over with them in Barcelona. Charles um, had elected to go out every night went to bars, restaurants, was kind of a Pied Piper in Barcelona. And I asked him one time, couldn't you help Michael a little bit in figuring out how to move through the crowd? There's a way to do it, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. Nobody follows me. But there's a way that you can do it when you're famous. Charles said, and you're full of crap, Jack. There's nothing like the Jordan thing. When I go out, okay, yeah, people know who I am. He said, it's nothing. It's nothing like Jordan. And so I, you know, he was kind of like a Howard Hughes with the exception of he had to play games. So the sporting, the sporting Howard Hughes can never quite be like the real Howard Hughes, even the reclusive actor, you know, even the actor that wants to stay out of sight. You have to go out and play a game. So you can't quite be like uh, those, those guys. But Michael was pretty close to it. He had withdrawn, you know, pretty much from public life. A good example was the movie. I mean, he did that movie, uh, Space Jam. You know, it's still making millions of dollars. His agent told me, David Falk, he could have, they could have been making Space Jam 39 by now. Michael would have, he would have another $15 billion. He just, it just didn't matter to him. It just, he... I remember he turned down something to that the country of Jordan wanted him to go to Jordan for a day for a million dollars. No, I'm not going to do it, you know. So this idea of withdrawing from public life and being, you know, as much of a semi-recluse as you can when you're a very famous person, Michael had plugged into that big time by 93, and it still really continues. I mean, there's a lot of people, I bet, listening to the show and who follow the NBA who weren't completely aware that Michael owns a team, you know, that Michael's still involved uh, in the league because, you you know, you just don't see him. In the story that you wrote for Sports Illustrated called The Desire Isn't There, um, you talked about how Michael Jordan had started to have a little bit of a, a feeling of resentment towards the media. Where did that start, and do you think that played a role in his retirement? Well, he... um. Back in uh, in '91, when I had done this story with him about Sportsman of the Year, he had he the first time I heard him talk about the resentment about Michael Jordan, and what he said was, "I didn't know everybody would resent. I thought I was supposed to project a positive image. I thought I I thought that's what you were supposed to be. I didn't really realize that everyone now would start to grow tired." of Michael Jordan as the positive, relentless person. Well, very soon after that, you know, the gambling debts and the gambling stories and the the book written by the guy, uh, Richard Esquinas, that he owed, you know, apparently a million dollars in golf bets to, came out. And all of a sudden, that perception changed. There was also a great book written about Michael by Sam Smith, who you mentioned earlier from the Chicago Tribune, called The Jordan Rules, which was about how Michael wasn't the guy we thought he was. 
Well, to us who were covering him, um, Sam's book was great. But none of us went, oh, my God, I don't believe that. We all believed he would smack somebody around in practice. We all, none of us believed the choir boy type of, uh, you know, image. So Michael thought that the media kind of did this, you know, just complete 180 on him. That one day I'm the cherubic kid and another day I'm uh, the worst person in the world who loses money gambling on a golf course and associates with uh, bad people. So was some of that true? I guess, but Michael, like everyone in that position, has to go back and realize what he contributed to it, how much he needed that media attention, how much that he fed on it. And if I go back and read what I wrote about Jordan, and I would never frighten it, it's always too frightening to do that, I would say that I never built him up too much to be a god off the court. And I never really tore him down too much when it uh, became apparent that he's a human being with many frailties. I, I thought I stayed, I thought I stayed uh, in the range, and I'm sure a lot of other people did. But in this age that we started to get into, the other thing that, that factored in there was that it was the beginning of the tabloid age. I mean, we didn't, ha- you know, there weren't cell phones by the time we, you know, when we started covering Michael. By the time we were done, it was getting a little bit into that more of a tabloid age and the talk radio age. What was your relationship with Michael Jordan like at the time of his retirement? I had, uh, I'm going to write about this, I think, on, on Twitter. You know, there was a time that when he was going after his first title in 91, there were, and this was really unusual for Sports Illustrated, we put him on the cover three straight times during the playoffs. Uh, that was really unusual. And it's not, it's, it's, I'm not going to say never, but it's not a credit to the story when something go, when I had a cover story, yeah, it was nice, but they usually didn't put someone on the cover because the story was great. They put someone on the cover because they want to put them on the cover that week. There's a timely reason to do it. It's going to spark some controversy, whatever the reason is. That's once in a while, it's a great photo. And once in a while, it's a story that may lift it over another story, maybe. But they just wanted to keep, they just wanted to put Mike on the cover because that what was selling and that's what America was paying attention to. And the third of those stories, the third week was after the finals. I had to read the rap, write the wrap up of it. And I met Michael in this breakfast place on Saturday morning. And he looked at me and he said, <laughs> and he said, man, I am really sick of you. And I said to him, I am really sick of you too. (laughs) Because to try to produce, you know, even though the stories weren't the reason they're going on the cover, you have to put something new into them. So there was this feeling of uh, fatigue. So I'm sure he was sick of me. After Michael retired and before he started playing baseball, do you know what he was doing? What like what did he what did Michael wake up and do? I guess other than golf, which is the obvious 
thing that he was doing every day. He worked his ass off to be a baseball player. I mean, he went to the cage. Um, he tried to uh, make himself better, uh, hit a lot of balls. I can't remember whether he went to um, Florida right away or whether he did this in Chicago. I, as far as I know, he could have installed a batting cage in it. But I know that he he really worked on being a baseball player, that he wasn't dumb enough to think that I'm going to walk take off my baseball sneakers and put on my cleats and I'm going to be able to get a one hit in a hundred at bats. Michael did not think that he knew his limitations and he worked on them and he did become a, uh, you know, a better player. But in, in regard, you know, you asked me this question 40 minutes ago. I can't remember whether I don't know whether that was in his mind at that press conference. That's one of the things I would like to know if he knew at that press conference what he was going to be doing. But once he decided that, and I suspect it was pretty soon after the press conference, he really started to work on being a baseball player. So it's 2020 right now, and we're still talking about Michael Jordan and this retirement and all of these great Sports Illustrated stories and this incredible career that he had. If you could kind of take a stab at why you think people still want to keep talking about Michael Jordan after all these years, what would you say? What would that reason be? I ask that question myself because every year I teach, uh, most semester, a lot, a lot of years I teach college age journalism at a couple different places. And it's usually a sports related course, some kind of sports writing or sport culture media or something like that. And the topic of Jordan invariably comes up from the students more than from me. I do this classroom every year when and I've been doing it for 20 years. Uh, this, virtu- this classroom out in Hawaii, they're seniors. Every year the teacher has me come on and talk about Michael Jordan. These kids, I mean, they were not now, I'm at the point where they weren't born when Michael was at the second uh, stage of his career. So they never saw him in his uh, in his prime, and I ask I ask my students this every year: <laughs> Why is your uh, one of your comparisons or one of your frames of reference Michael Jordan? Why isn't it more LeBron or Steph Curry or Durant or Harden? And one year this past semester, some uh, one in the class answered, "I don't know." He seems to exist as sort of this Arturian legend. He seems to be that kind of, it's almost like stronger our connection to him because we didn't see him, you know, because he never had like a human dimension. And his one human dimension is something very powerful, and that is he's a brand. He's a commercial brand. I don't keep up with this, but I don't know his brand he's still got to be bigger than you'd be better to answer this question to me. He's still got to be bigger than LeBron or Kurt, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, Jordan, Jordan brand is, if you ask 10 people off the street, what a Michael Jordan logo, who it was, everyone would know it's Michael Jordan, you know, Steph Curry. Should anybody have more of a, <laughs> should anybody have more of like a clothing line or something going on than Steph? And, and Jordan still dwarfs him. So I think it's this combination of being this very corporeal brand and then this being this probably 
from talking to people like, you know, their father and now their, you know, their uncles and now their grandfathers, hearing people like me talking about them, that the message of Jordan is just so strong that it's inside of their head. Apparently it's never going to get out. Do I need a job? No. I never had a job. I don't want one now. (laughs) Thanks to my friend Jack for sharing his MJ stories with us. And so, Jess, you've done the research, you've heard the stories. What do you think ultimately was the motivation for Michael Jordan to come back two years later? I think that the motivation for coming back was that baseball just really wasn't working out for Michael Jordan. He was not very good at it, at least not really good enough to play at a professional level. And there was also a player strike in 1995, which kind of forced his hand too. Anyone who you talk to about Michael Jordan, whether it's Jack McCallum or other teammates that he had or coaches that coached him, will tell you that he is the most competitive person that they've ever met. And knowing that and knowing that he was still physically capable of winning basketball games in 1995 meant that an NBA comeback kind of seemed like a no-brainer. So in 1995, Jordan releases this famous press release that was just two words, I'm back. And I think in retrospect, that's one of the things that makes this so strange, right? Here's someone who's just ferociously competitive, and we see athletes, you know, so Serena Williams still out there, almost 39 years old, and Tiger Woods in his 40s, and we see even what Michael Jordan, you know, he would retire and unretire again. I, I think it makes this decision to retire at, at age 30 and take off the better part of two seasons sort of all the more strange. But I, I mean, were you satisfied? Did we Did we ever get resolution here? No, you know, I don't think that there is one satisfying answer. And that's actually why I think that this conspiracy theory is still lingering 25 years later. Uh, I think that's because people would rather believe that Michael Jordan was forced to quit and retire for a year because of this gambling scandal than to think that someone who was at the top of their game and, you know, the best in their sport would turn it all down for, you know, whatever reason. Um, So I think it's interesting to look back at 1993 and think about that we didn't know that Michael Jordan was going to come back and win those next three championships. And the story would be so much different had that not happened. And, you know, people could be blaming Michael Jordan for retiring and wasting a year of his prime. Uh, But looking back, I think that, you know, this might have been the right choice all along, like you said. Like, this might have extended his career and had been the thing that allowed him to come back and win those last three championships with the Bulls. It's like halftime. He won three straight titles, uh, took took a breather, and then came back and won uh, three more straight. Can I ask you an embarrassing question? Were you born when this retirement announcement was made? I was born about eight months after Michael Jordan first retired from the NBA, so I was not tuned in to NBC Chicago. Given that, and that you're re, you know, you you didn't live this. You obviously looked at this in retrospect with fresh eyes, though. Did this enhance, detract, change your impression of what you thought about Michael Jordan? 
That's a great question. I grew up right outside of Chicago, about 15 miles away from the United Center, formerly Chicago Stadium. So I always had this opinion that Michael Jordan was this basketball god because, you know, I listened to my dad talk about him and my friends growing up idolized him. But I don't think that this takes away from my opinion of him. In fact, I think it adds a level of complexity that I wouldn't have grasped when I was growing up because this is a side of Michael Jordan that is so human that he was going through so much at the time and that, you know, he wasn't this perfect person who had this perfect fairy tale NBA career where he won all these championships and went out on top. He was actually a pretty complicated guy. And I think that this chapter of his life demonstrates that well and that, you know, he just needed to take a break from it. And I actually think that that's something that we can all relate to. So in October 1993, Michael Jordan, age 30, solemnly declares he's not going to play basketball again. Fortunately for everyone, not least him, less than two years later, he was back. He would win three more titles. He would go down as the greatest player of all time. This was an interesting look into a strange interlude in an unrivaled career. Jessica, thanks. That was great stuff. Thanks, John. I'm John Wertheim. This is Sports Illustrated's The Record. We will have another deep dive from history next week. You can subscribe to The Record on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Keep the guest suggestions coming, leave a review, and we'll do it again in seven days. Our episode today was produced by Jessica Smetana. Alex Hampel is a supervising producer on the project and edited today's episode. Our executive producer is Scott Brody, and SI's director of digital projects and product is Ben Eagle. Stay tuned next week for another edition of The Record. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 